break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 2nd of February, 2022. Very happy to be back with you here on the show. Plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about ongoing Russia-U.S. tensions, about how Netflix is basically paying no taxes. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with the high cost of prison health care. It's fairly widely known that prison health care in the United States is not of a very high quality. One thing that is probably not as well known is the fact that in most prison systems around the country, prisoners are required to pay very high co-pays for access to medical care while inside. Forty states in the federal system, in fact, require co-pays. The costs on their face can seem quite low, 2 to $5 on average. However, it's important to put that into context to what prisons pay inmates for their work. On average, 14 to $0.63 cents an hour at best. Some prisoners, of course, aren't even paid for their work. As the Prison Policy Initiative notes, comparatively, a typical 2 to $5 copay is the equivalent of charging a free world worker $200 to $500 for a medical visit. They know that there are two more or less inevitable outcomes to these policies, saying, quote, first, when sick, people avoid the doctor. Disease is more likely to spread to others in the facility and into the community when people are released before being treated or when diseases are carried by correctional staff back to their homes. Second, illnesses are likely to worsen as long as people avoid the doctor, which means more aggressive and expensive treatment when they can no longer go without it, end quote. Prison officials claim that they institute the copays to prevent quote-unquote unnecessary care. However, in Oregon, a state that eliminated copays, a state-funded study noted that, quote, copay systems do not seem to lower overall health care costs, and triage on a case-by-case basis is more cost-effective than implementing system-wide copayment plans. During the pandemic, most states created some form of modification of their co-payment program, but only 10 suspended the fees for any point during the pandemic, and already the trend is starting to reverse. As the Prison Policy Institute further noted, quote, five states, Alabama, Arkansas, Idaho, Minnesota, and Texas, rolled back their COVID-19 copay modifications at some point during the pandemic. Alabama went from suspending all copays to reinstating them for all cases in December 2020. Similarly, Minnesota and Texas had modified copays to accommodate people with COVID-19 symptoms, but reinstated all copays in December 2020 and September 2021, respectively. End quote. Texas, by the way, has one of the most stringent policies charging $13.55 per visit as their copay. There are, however, 12 states that have no copays, including California, Virginia, Wyoming, Illinois, New Mexico, Missouri, Nebraska, Montana, New York, and Vermont. Ultimately, it's just another example of the realities of mass incarceration in the United States, where by design, conditions are set to be as punitive and as torturous as possible. Netflix posted a $5.3 billion profit in 2021 but paid the federal government just $58 million in taxes, 
a 1.1% effective tax rate. The official corporate tax rate, by the way, is 21%. And had Netflix paid that 21% rate, they would have paid $1.1 billion in taxes. So just again, $5.3 billion in profits, $58 million in taxes, which means they avoided over $1 billion in taxes to the federal government in 2021. This, in fact, is par for the course with Netflix. In 2020, they paid $24 million in federal income tax on a $2.7 billion profit, a 0.9% tax rate. In 2019, they paid $21 million in taxes on a $1.7 billion profit, a 1.3% tax rate. And in 2018, Netflix actually got $22 million back from the feds, ending up with a negative 2.5% tax rate. So clearly they have been gaming the system as best they can using the large variety of loopholes built into the 2017 trillion dollar tax cut pushed by the Trump administration and the Republican Congress. The Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy has noted from the limited disclosures, three main tax breaks that are helping Netflix pull this off. First is the accelerated depreciation tax break, which allows companies to, quote, write off the cost of investments in equipment more quickly than the equipment wears out and loses value. The most likely outcome is that this rewards companies for making investments they would have made absent any tax break, end quote. Second is the, quote, stock option tax break, which allows companies to write off stock option-related expenses for tax purposes that go far beyond expenses they report to investors. This effectively subsidizes companies that use stock options to compensate employees, mostly their top executives, end quote. So, yes, that's right, a tax break for giving your corporate officers big stock options as payment. Hmm. And third is the, quote, research and development tax credit, which is supposed to encourage innovation, but probably rewards companies for research they would have conducted in the absence of any tax break. Reasonable people can disagree, says the Institute for Taxation and Economic Policy, on whether the United States needs to subsidize, through the tax code or otherwise, any research conducted by Netflix. But what Netflix is doing is not rare, as ITEP also noted between 2018 and 2020. 39 profitable corporations paid zero federal income tax on $122 billion in combined profits. So yes, Virginia, it's true. The tax code is rigged to make sure the wealthiest people in corporations pay nothing close to what could be considered a fair share of their income and profits in taxes. Three thousand U.S. troops are being deployed to Romania and Poland as part of ongoing efforts by the Biden administration to use the threat of hostilities with Russia as part of an unfolding geopolitical game between the two countries around the issue of European security. There are already four thousand U.S. troops in Poland, nine hundred in Romania, a hundred in Lithuania, plus sixty in Latvia and Estonia. So overall, the U.S. will now have between eight and nine thousand troops, roughly forward deployed. One important factor here is these are actually totally meaningless numbers. Literally every military analyst on Earth recognizes that if they so chose, the Russians could invade and take the entire Ukraine, not just the East, and maybe even several other countries, and the NATO military presence could do basically nothing to stop it. Ultimately, the only real deterrence is nuclear deterrence, and that ultimately is what the troop deployments signal or are supposed to signal. As John Kirby, Pentagon spokesman, noted about the deployment, quote, we are making it clear that we are going to be prepared to defend our NATO allies if it comes to that, end quote. In other words, don't test us because you may end up in a nuclear war. And that, in fact, is the entire purpose of the expansion of NATO eastward. Every country that joins falls under the U.S.-U.K.-French nuclear umbrella. 
which, if they are neighboring Russia, means they could engage in all sorts of provocations. And if Russia was to hit back, it's facing potential nuclear retaliation from three of the world's largest nuclear powers. As the U.S. national defense strategy states, the U.S. wants to prevent Russia from having any, quote, governmental, economic, and diplomatic, end quote, influence with nations on its, quote, unquote, periphery. So again, the entire policy of NATO is to try to hem Russia in, to raise the stakes of a potential nuclear conflict and create a situation where potentially minor, somewhat minor incidents with countries on Russia's border can be used as a cudgel to shape its policies in Europe to U.S.-NATO liking, since those potentially minor or somewhat minor incidents could be escalated into a potential nuclear conflict relatively quickly. This is clearly reflected in the U.S. negotiating positions in the conflict, the details of which were recently leaked, at least allegedly, to the Spanish newspaper El País. When you look at the U.S. negotiating positions, they follow fairly closely to public statements made so far by U.S. officials. They implicitly addressed the issue of Russia's desire for an ironclad guarantee that Ukraine won't join NATO by implying they would only agree to that if Russia left Crimea, which clearly isn't going to happen. It's clear that the U.S. is trying to focus negotiations on a few key issues. First, an inspection regime where Russia will be able to inspect U.S. missile sites in Romania and Poland to make sure they are not being modified for offensive purposes. And then the U.S. would have the right to inspect two Russian missile sites of, quote unquote, their choosing. Additionally, the U.S. seems willing to deal on military exercises and establishing deconfliction protocols to try to de-escalate potential conflicts before they happen. When you look at it in sum... The U.S. position is essentially to preserve the maximum scope for provocative anti-Russia actions while trying to limit the possibility of war being triggered by any of these smaller provocations. So a step back from the current brink, but maintaining a high level of tensions in an overall anti-Russia policy. It's not 100% clear how Russia feels about all of this, although they have expressed openness along these lines in terms of negotiating along some of these lines, but also they have remained committed to some of their proposals the U.S. and NATO won't meet. Russia and China also announced a Xi-Putin meeting on Friday. China has traditionally not said much on these issues because it also has close relations with many Eastern European countries who aren't all that friendly to Russia, including Ukraine, by the way. But they have already stated that Russia deserves security guarantees this time around, and likely China will seek to boost Russia's position somehow, even rhetorically, in the meeting. Which all really means we are now in a prolonged state of standoff as both sides are seeking to bolster their position and work whatever angles they can. As we've often noted, the standoff could end easily if the U.S. would just publicly say something that, again, almost all analysts agree is the case and which they've signaled in various ways they will never do, and that is allowing Ukraine to become a part of NATO. But instead of just recognizing that basic fact, the U.S. insists on maintaining total control of all geopolitical realities, even at the risk of nuclear war. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 